For our scripture reading, we turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We read the end of chapter 4 and then go into chapter 5. So we begin at chapter 4, verse 14. This Lord's Day speaks of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And we see how there's a reference to that in the passage that, that we read concerning our, our sympathetic high priest, our sympathetic mediator. Begin at verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
The strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning. The passage we just read and the rest of Scripture also are the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 14. There we read. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Dearly beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we consider this Lord's Day today under the theme, our sympathetic mediator, who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And how that's related to what we read of in this Lord's Day. This Lord's Day speaks about the phrase, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. What does that mean? And when we explain this Lord's Day, we bring out that Jesus is both God and man, one divine person, the second person of the Trinity with two natures, divine nature and a human nature. Now that, that he's divine and human has already been set forth in the Heidelberg Catechism. In the earlier Lord's Days, Leading up to this, we already talked about why we needed a mediator who was, was God. Only God could sustain God's wrath and deliver others from it. And also why he had to be a man. So the man had sinned. And how he would sustain God's wrath in his human nature. By the power of his Godhead. So the fact that we needed a mediator who was both God and man, has already been set forth in the Heidelberg Catechism. Also, the truth of the Trinity has been set forth. 
Now we talk about how the Son, the eternal Son, is eternally begotten, the second person eternally begotten of the first. That's already been treated up to this point. This Lord's Day is a Lord's Day where we again talk about the one person with two natures. But there's also a more of a stress on his humanity. And that's brought out in the Lord's Day itself when it brings it, quotes that phrase that he's like unto us in all things. Sin accepted. That he took upon himself the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost. And this is a very comforting passage that sometimes cite and quote to one another when we go through difficult times. This very verse. We have a high priest that's passed into the heavens that can be touched. When it says we have not an high priest which cannot be touched, that if you... You know, you have the double negative there. And if you turn it to the positive, means we have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That he was in all points tempted like we are. Yet without sin. And then the application of that, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. And then when it talks about prayer, that we're to pray, pray mindful of the fact that we have our divine and human mediator, our sympathetic mediator interceding for us at God's right hand, we are to come to God by him, by that mediator, and the passage also directs us to Christ's prayers, who in the days of his flesh, in this life, not only the fact that he's interceding for us now, but it also directs us to consider his prayers in the days of his flesh. And what our Lord went through in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. He really did. He offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So the passage also directs us to consider how he suffered for us. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, he came to God with strong crying and tears and was heard. 
And now he has ascended into heaven, our sympathetic mediator, and he intercedes for us at God's right hand. We look at this Lord's Day, first of all, considering the holy conception that's referred to. Secondly, looking at the fact that he's a, a, a real man, the focus on his humanity. And then thirdly, from that point of view of the, the sympathetic priest. The theme, our sympathetic mediator, the holy conception, the real man, and the sympathetic priest. First of all, with regard to the phrase, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost. And in the answer 30, question 32, there's a reference to his holy conception and nativity. This is the Lord's Day on the Incarnation, which is a term that has the idea of infleshing. And it's referring to, the Incarnation refers to what's brought out here, that he took upon himself the very nature of man. The Word, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, took upon himself the very nature of man. The infleshing of the word. That's the meaning of the word incarnation. Now we bring out that you can make a reference to all three persons when you talk about the incarnation. And on the one hand, it was the second person of the three it was the second person who took upon himself our flesh. It was he who was eternally the Son of God who took upon himself our flesh. And is the Son of God also from the viewpoint of his, of his humanity. Yet it is also the case that the Father sent the Son. And as far as the third person, the Holy Spirit, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we do see all three persons, yet it was the second person who took upon himself our flesh. And this happened, and our Belgic Confession stresses this, that this happened without the means of man. Without the means of man. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, born of a virgin. And that's really true. He was born of a virgin. Now, there are those that have denied that. You know, there are those that go to the scriptures, and when they see something that speaks of a wonder, they say, well, you know, that couldn't be. You know, they may have spoken of that in the scriptures, but there's no way that somebody, that a virgin can conceive. And then some have tried to say that the word in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, that that word can really mean simply a marriageable girl, or a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. 
Well, the word is in the Old Testament. The word is translated virgin elsewhere. In the book of Genesis, in the Song of Solomon, are a couple of places where we do find the term translated virgin. There are some places where the verb is, where the word is translated as made. But we often point out in Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says, This shall be a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, why would it be a sign to take note of if it simply is referring to normal conception? The fact that it's a, a virgin that conceives, that, that's something that's, that's notable. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And also, the New Testament is decisive on this point. Because when the New Testament quotes from Isaiah 7.14, it uses a word that is translated virgin. And when you look throughout the New Testament where that word appears in the Greek now, that word is always translated as virgin or virgins. So in Matthew 1 verse 23, when it quotes from the Old Testament, it uses a word that is consistently in the New Testament translated as virgin. And of course, that also goes with what Mary herself said when the angel told her that she was going to conceive and have a son, that she said, how shall this be, seeing I am literally not knowing a man? And that has been understood to be referring to the fact how she's a virgin. How is it going to be the case that she is going to conceive? And even though she was betrothed to Joseph, it was the case that she was still a virgin. And of course, the church has understood it this way too. The Apostles' Creed that goes way back. In fact, we don't even know the exact origin of the Apostles' Creed, how far back it goes, uses that phrase, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. So the church has been confessing that for centuries and even putting that in a, in a confession, that God's people have confessed that it really was the case that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin, and how those two go together. How could it be that he was born of a virgin? Well, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Jesus said he came down from heaven. A number of passages in the book of John, we read of that, where Jesus spoke of himself as coming down from heaven. And then there were those that said, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? This is Joseph's son. Isn't he the son of the carpenter? How, how is it that he says he came down from heaven? Now, what Jesus said is true. He came down from heaven. He is one person with two natures. Not two persons. He's not two sons of God. There's not two sons of God. 
That's an easy way to remember that. Sometimes people get confused on that question. Is Jesus one person or two? And they get confused and they think about his natures and they say two. Well, if he was two persons, there'd be two sons of God. And it's not two sons of God, but one. He's the second person of the Trinity. And being the second person of the Trinity, he's free from original guilt. That is a crucial point. To understand that he is not guilty for the sin of Adam. When the question is asked, why, why are you and I born with sinful natures? Well, we're all guilty for the sin of Adam. We all had parents, a man and a woman. And when a man and a woman have a child, that child is guilty for the sin of Adam. And being guilty, which is called original guilt, we receive a depraved nature. Jesus was born of a virgin. His father is God. He's not guilty for the sin of Adam. And his nature is sinless. And that's brought out in answer 36. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he's our mediator... And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. That's a comforting statement to read that and consider the sins in which I was conceived and brought forth. You see what it's saying here. It makes us it's directing us to think of how we were conceived and born in sin. Our mediator, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God, your and my sins, wherein we were conceived and brought forth. Second person of the Trinity, no original guilt, sinless nature. Emmanuel, God with us, and we often stress that, too, the idea of the covenant when you look at Jesus. Talk about friendship between God and man in Christ. Well, we see, think we're directed to the union of the divine and human natures in the one person of the Son of God. And that he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. We are united with him who is both God and man. We are engrafted into him by faith. And the one we're engrafted into is our divine and human mediator, 
that idea of the covenant. God and man. The fellowship that we have with God through our, our mediator. Who's one divine person, two natures. And the fact that he's got two natures means he has two wills, because the will belongs to the nature. Of course, that's the answer to the question when people say, well, when people deny Jesus' divinity and if they point to passages where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Well, how could he say that if he's God? We say, well, he's got two natures. And the will belongs to the nature. And so he's speaking of himself from the viewpoint of his humanity which is also referred to in Hebrews 5 when it talks about his obedience. And that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Two wills. He was obedient even unto death. And... He's still a man today. Now, that's another place where sometimes people forget, or sometimes people have never had it right, that they think that, sometimes people may think that he was man for a while, while he was on earth, but not anymore. But that's not the case. It's not the case that he's no longer a man. He is still a man. We confess in the Belgian Confession that the second person of the Trinity is inseparably united, inseparably united with the human nature. So he took upon himself our flesh. He took upon himself the human nature. And his person is inseparably united with the human nature. Though he's still a man today, and that God, the sovereign God, governs and directs all things through the mediator. Now, this Jesus is a real man. And in this regard, I want to look at the fact that there is a stress put in our confessions on the fact that he was of the, uh, that he took upon him the very nature of man of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. The Belgian Confession goes on to about this more at length when it speaks about the heresy of the Anabaptists, which is not just an error of the past. And it's quite important that we understand what that error was which serves to explain why the Belgic Confession goes on a bit about it, that 
the heresy of the, the heresy of the Anabaptists is that they deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother. That they say that he was specially created and then placed inside the womb of Mary so that he came out of Mary, but he wasn't a fruit of her womb. That it isn't really the case that it was of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, because Mary was a sinner. So if he, if, if he was of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, he would have been a sinner too, so the thought goes. An example of somebody teaching that in the recent past is a man named Henry Morris, who has been sometimes referred to as the father of scientific creationism. Some of us have read his books because he held to a six literal day creation, which is correct, of course, and so sometimes we've read some books people of our churches may have read a number you know different books from what's sometimes been called the society for creation research uh, that uh, where they defend that the bible is literally true when it talks about the creation but there are other areas when they when some of the writers like this, Henry Morris, when he writes in his, of his other theological views where he greatly errs. And this man was a man who uh, is said to have been a Baptist. Baptist, a certain connection of some sort between the Anabaptists of the past and Baptists to today in certain respects. And he wrote, This wonderful body would not grow from a man's seed, as in every other human birth, nor would it grow from a woman's egg. For in either case, a sin-carrying and mutation-carrying embryo would necessarily result. It must instead be a seed specially formed by the Creator Himself, then planted in the virgin's womb. That's the, that's the air that our creeds speak against. And this was relatively recently that this man wrote this. It can be seen online. Henry Morris writing about when God became man. It's been sometimes said that that's really what it amounts to. A simple way to remember that is to say that it really denies that Mary was his mother and speaks rather of Mary being like a storage unit. She would simply be the storage unit in which this specially created one would be placed. And that is not correct. The scriptures speak of the fact that he is of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. And there are numerous passages of scripture that speak of this. 
And that's why in the Belgian Confession, Article 18, it quotes from a number of phrases. It says that Christ is become a partaker of the flesh and blood of the children, that he is a fruit of the loins of David after the flesh. What it's doing, what the confession is doing is quoting different verses. And in the study edition of the Creed, you can see where these verses are. Made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he's made of the seed of David. A fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary. Made of a woman. A branch of David. A shoot of the root of Jesse. Sprung from the tribe of Judah. And so on. And there's more. Phrases. There's numerous phrases in the scripture that bring out that the birth of Jesus was a real birth. So it wouldn't have been surprising if people were rec recognizing that he, had, that he looked like his mother. If that was the case, that wouldn't have been surprising. It was a real birth. Mary really was his mother. A real birth. And if somebody says, well, if it was a real birth, well, then he'd be sinful, because Mary was sinless. Well, we don't go in the direction of saying that Mary was sinless. It was the case that she was a sinner and needed the Savior, just as we do. But it's important to remember what we already talked about. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the second person of the Trinity that took upon himself our flesh. He is not a human person. He's the divine person. He's free from original guilt. He didn't have a sinful nature. The two natures are united. Without mixture. Sometimes people call Jesus the God-man. Maybe you've heard that phrase. That people will say that Jesus is the God-man. Well, the question is, what does somebody mean by that? That's, that's a phrase that sometimes people use. And if they say, well, well, I mean by that that he has a divine nature and a human nature. Well, that, of course, is true. But it's important to bring out that the, mixed, the natures are not mixed together or fused together. Better to speak of him as a divine and human mediator or a divine and human uh, savior. And the human nature did not change. Human nature did not become omnipresent. We bring about that when we talk about the when we talk about the uh, the ascension. And how the Lutherans speak about the human nature of Christ being omnipresent. When you talk about eating and drinking Jesus, and there are those that have said that the Christ in his human nature is now omnipresent. We say, no, the human nature did not change. Still finite. And the divine nature didn't change. Can't change. God is immutable. Unchangeable. His divine nature cannot change. He couldn't cast off some of his divine perfections 
that what happened rather was that his human nature veiled his divine. And as people saw him, he appeared to be simply a man. And the two natures remained united even while he lay in the grave. Even then, the two natures were united. He has a complete human nature, body and soul. It wasn't the case that the divine nature took the place of the human spirit. Rather, he's a complete man, body and soul, to redeem us, both body and soul. A complete man with infirmities. Very man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. Very man that he might die for us according to the infirmities, infirmity of his flesh. He is said to have been crucified through weakness in 2 Corinthians 13, 4. And there's a reference to that in the passages that we read. When it says that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, in all points tempted like you and me. Now that's a beautiful application of the truth. It's very important that we understand the truth of the incarnation over against a number of different heirs. But also to look at the application of that and see the importance of us confessing that he was a, he's a real man. And what he went through, what his life, what he experienced in his life. In the different trials that we go through, in the sorrows that we face, at times our mind starts to go to the sufferings of Christ and what what he experienced in his life. We speak of his lifelong suffering. The Lord, we're going to come to that actually in the next Lord's Day, is on his suffering. So this kind of leads into that. His whole life was a life of suffering. In this life, we can have a desire for things to go relatively easy for us. And yet it's God's plan that we have many afflictions. God says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But that God delivers us out of them all. And... The one who intercedes for us at God's right hand was a one that is 
touched with the feeling of your and my infirmities. And then when it goes on in chapter 5, you know, it talks about how he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He was really tempted. It's true that he could not sin because he's God. Yet he really was tempted. And when we read in verse 7 of his tears, you know, one place that comes to mind is what it was like for him in Gethsemane. Sweat was like unto drops of blood. He offered up prayers, it says, and supplications with strong crying and tears. It's good that we direct our that our mind is directed to that. Jesus tears. Jesus strong crying. And in praying, in praying to God, he went to God. He went to him who was able to save him from death. And he kept calling out to God. You see how that's related to the fact that he's a real man. That in all things like unto us, without sin, in all things like unto us, crucified through weakness, he called out to God who was able to save him and he was heard. And then that next verse Though he were a son, the sinless son, learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. That he, that he learned, that's an astounding statement. He was sinless. This passage says he learned. He learned obedience. And he remained obedient. Even as in, in times of agony, he remained obedient. And we're to imitate him. In that in our trials, on the one hand, we're comforted knowing that our high priest is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And also, we see how he went to God and how he remained obedient. 
not turning away from God and his trials, but going to God, not disobeying when things are difficult, but remaining obedient, learning obedience. And then it says, in being made perfect, and that doesn't mean perfect in the sense that he was, you, you know, we sometimes use perfect in the sense of free from error, as if he was a sinner before, but now he was perfect. It can also have an idea of uh, being brought to the goal, being brought to the end. It was the will of God that he would learn obedience. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And then again, bringing out the word obey. We're to imitate him. Our sympathetic priest The word touched with is the word from which, is the Greek word from which we get our word sympathize. And so that's why this, you know, this in line with that, this is often quoted from that point of view, that he's our sympathetic high priest, which is in line with what touched with, what the word there means. Touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We are to come boldly to the throne of grace in our trials. Verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. That after it talks about our mediator, talks about our high priest, our sympathetic high priest, it says, let us therefore, we have a sympathetic high priest, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Coming boldly, coming boldly does not mean without reverence, Boldly doesn't mean without reverence. We show, we, we come with godly fear. But it has the idea also that we come to him with confidence. Reverence and confidence. That we come to the throne of grace to, that we may obtain mercy, that we may find grace to help in the time of our need. We look to God. We look to him that is able to deliver us. He knows how to deliver us. Scripture elsewhere stresses that, that he knows how to deliver you. 
in the trials that you're in, the difficulties that you face, he knows how to deliver you. And God grants us the grace we need. He's faithful. He has fulfilled his promise. He sent his son as he said he would. He was raised from the dead and ascended as God said he would. He will return as God has said that he would. And he will grant us grace sufficient as he has said that he will. Believe in him. Trust him. With God, nothing shall be impossible. God spoke about the virgin birth. Recall that that phrase is found with God. Nothing shall be impossible. What he's promised, he's able also to perform. May we trust in him, rely on him, and may we be comforted by the truth that we read of here. May we boldly go to our God, praying to God in the name of of our sympathetic mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, how great thou art and greatly to be praised. So thankful for the comfort that we have in Christ Jesus. So thankful for our sympathetic mediator. Lord, we come to thee in the trials that we face, and we know that thou art teaching us. As we think of our mediator who learned obedience, may we also learn obedience. And as we come unto thee, as our Lord did, may we receive the grace, O Lord, that we need. We're so thankful that we are united in Jesus Christ, our mediator. May we imitate him. May we glorify and praise thee. May we live to the honor of thy name. Forgive our sins, O Lord. Keep us from sin. For Christ's sake, amen.